0: Hollywood, is Rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and as always, we have a really wonderful show lined up for you today. Today is the Transgender Day of Visibility. And um, so, therefore, we are going to be trans, proud, and visible. Um, And part of our visibility is to expose you to a film that is currently making its round in film festivals and hopefully will be available to you soon for your visibility. Um, it's a film called see you then it is very intimate film um very much the you know kind of the coffee house um uh you know conversation my dinner with andre type conversation type film um and it centers around a relationship um that uh, has been over for 10 years and the um the partners in that relationship come together. One of the partners is trans and has transitioned, and so finding out who they are now is instrumental and the the focus of the film. Uh, The film is uh, the director, writer, producer, genius behind the film is a woman named Mari Walker. Mari is on deck, um, and she is going to tell us about The film, Um, she is also an award-winning filmmaker. Her work has been seen at Sundance, at SXSW, Frameline, Outfest. So um, this is not her first time at the rodeo. Also special, um, which my co-host is unaware of, so this is the first he is hearing about it. But we also have the lead actress in the film on deck as well. Um, and uh, Puya, it was absolutely riveting in the film. Her performance is nuanced and haunting and emotional um, on, on many, many levels, and we're very fortunate to have her waiting on deck as well. So um, anyway, that is what we have in store for you today. Uh, with no further ado, I am going to bring on my co-host, the um, very well-known, very well-read um, editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine and um, renowned journalist um, for, for for probably more many years than he really is comfortable with me mentioning. But uh, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show.
1: That would definitely be more than I'm comfortable mentioning.
0: Hi, Rob. Good afternoon, greater than five.
1: Two. Yeah, well, much greater than five. Uh, five squared. Um, greetings to all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, as always, uh, we hope that our show, um, uh, educates and articulates things that the LGBTQ community really needs, uh, to talk about, to hear, and to be aware of. Speaking of which, I'll jump right into the news cycle. Um, Yesterday was not a good day for the trans community. We had some pretty onerous laws that were signed in Arizona, South Dakota, and in Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma Governor Stitt signed uh, an anti-trans youth sports bill. I believe this is number 15, in this legislative session. He also signed a bill that would make it impossible for transgender folks uh, to get their gender markers changed on Oklahoma documents, which, of course, would have a significantly negative impact uh, on trans folks uh, for driver's licenses, passports, et cetera. So it's, it's a pain in the neck. Skipping a couple of states over to Arizona, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed a law that would prevent certain types of medical care for transgender youth. And then he signed another bill, which would be number 15 or 16, also barring Arizona's trans students, K-12, participating in student sports. And then he signed an abortion bill that mirrors the Mississippi law that's currently being challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court that would outlaw abortion after 15 weeks. Of course, that will affect queer, non-binary, and trans males, as well as women being unable to exercise their reproductive rights over their own bodies. So that got signed. Let's jump up to South Dakota. Governor Noem, oh, how I love Governor Noem. So Governor Noem signed a piece of legislation that not only did she author, but she pushed through. And essentially this bill would censor any kind of divisive concepts. It's not at the K through 12 level. This particular bill is aimed at South Dakota's higher education. Now the House bill uh, 1012 is entitled an act to protect students, employees, and institutions of higher education from divisive concepts. The problem is that not only would this bill address the right wing's obsession with critical race thinking, but the law also now targets educators that would, in effect, erase and marginalize not only just the indigenous aboriginal history of Native Americans, but also LGBTQ education as well. So it's a double editor. I spoke with a source at South Dakota State University yesterday on background, a senior member of the faculty who told me that the legislation is weaponized to silence minority voices, especially LGBTQ plus people and Native Americans. And this is what the person said to me. By passing and then signing this onerous partisan bill, Noam just ensured that the only voices in the room will be white, Christian, and opposed to having students be able to think for themselves. Conceivably, for example, the massacre at Wounded Knee would be sanitized and categorized as a, quote, necessary treaty enforcement by the United States Army. This bill will lead to revisionism, created by an atmosphere of fear where my colleagues would be reluctant to put their employment in jeopardy if they dared to tell the truth. Then there's the fact that issues around same-sex marriage, but acutely transgender people and the treatment they receive, plus the fact that there's an active effort to erase their existence, means any rational classroom discussion or lectures would not occur so as to, God forbid, not offend the so-called conservatives under the definition of divisive concepts. This is ridiculous, but it shows people outside of our state the mendacity of Nome and her supporters.
0: So, so Brody, let me get this straight. That, this, 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 wait, this bill is aimed at colleges?
1: At colleges and universities.
0: <laughs> Private and public. Yep, both. How in God's green earth can that stand that is that's that is that couldn't be more anti-first amendment if it tried
1: well trust me i spoke to the american civil liberties union of south dakota this morning she signed the bill yesterday they're filing a lawsuit probably as early as tomorrow (laughs) i it, well you know i mean it's like the don't say gay bill which today a lawsuit was filed in u.s district court for northern California. Uh, not not Northern California, Northern Florida, challenging Florida's Don't Say Gay Law that was just signed by DeSantis. I, these laws are going to get challenged. But as Amit Paley, who's the CEO and director of the Trevor Project, told me, the biggest problem with these laws are the signals that they send and the optics. You know, th- let's take just the, the trans-use sports bills. Number 15 this year, this has a direct impact on trans youth. Amit told me that the Trevor Project volunteers, since Texas passed theirs, saw an uptick and an increase of 45% in calls for assistance or help to the Trevor Project hotlines. That's just theirs. I'm sure that the calls to the National Suicide Hotline probably are also in the same range. These onerous laws have a direct impact on the mental health of not just only trans kids, but queer kids, gay and lesbian kids, and even bi kids. It's sending a message. And the problem is that, you know, it's incumbent on not just us in the press, but also in the rest of the world to get out there and fight these things and and make a lot of noise about it. You know, it today – you know, the irony, of course, is it's Trans Visibility Day, and yesterday was Let's Bash All the Trans People Day in three state houses. So, you know, my way of thinking on this is that we just need to continue, you know, to put a spotlight on these issues. And we need to continue to not only just support our trans brothers and sisters, but the entire community. Yeah. be I keep telling people this and every conversation I've had about this legislation conversation, you and I've had off air. Okay. The simple truth is there's a war and the war is to erase as much of the LGBTQ community as they can. And at the tip of the spear of the war and the target right now is the trans community, but make no mistake. Okay. They're not going to stop trying to erase trans people. They're going to go after the rest of it. And, and it's just a matter of time before these laws continue to pile up. But don't say gay bill, for example. There are seven other states right now considering similar legislation, one of which is on a House floor in Tennessee for a vote. This is, you know, a war. And, it, again, it's predicated on bad science. It's predicated on bad faith. And it's predicated on the fact that these are white, nationalistic, uber-Christian, so-called conservatives, that while they may be a minority, the problem is they have the majority in control of these state houses. And as long as they continue to do that, and, and even down at the local level, local school boards are being overrun by these people. Moms for Liberty is a good example. They're trying to literally ban books and erase LGBTQ plus existence and trans existence in particular out of schools. This is the whole aim for them. They lost at the high court with Lagerbuffell. So this is their second time at play. And with the high court structure, the way it is currently with a majority six justice conservative, it becomes a little dicey overall on how these rulings go. Now in the South Dakota case, I don't think that Justice Roberts or Justice Gorsuch is going to let that law stand because it is so blatantly unconstitutional and because it marginalizes every minority group out there, not just ours. But this is, again, this is their thinking. You know, they attacked the critical race theory, which was taught at a college level. It's not even taught in public schools, okay? And it, there's a bottom line here. These people don't want to accept the fact that, that their precious United States is a fantasy in their little world. The truth of the matter is this country has committed acts of genocide against Aboriginal Native Americans. This country very much is responsible for slavery and its after effects all the way through Jim Crow and civil rights there. This country is very much responsible for homophobic and transphobic nonsense. And at the core and at the base, the foundation to all of this is their disturbed, completely twisted view of their so-called white identity and nationalistic Christian fascism. And the problem is this minority is now in control of the majority. And it's a real fight, it's a real battle, and there are real victims. There is collateral damage. As I'm on the air right now with you, Rob, according to the Trevor Project the National Suicide Headline: In the next second, approximately five gay kids are going to kill themselves mm. or trans. Right. So there you go. It's a war.
0: Yeah. Right now. Welcome to Russia. Doing? Yeah. Much. Welcome to Russia. Yeah. Yeah, and it is—it is ironic in the system. It is a minority that has taken hold. I mean, because used to be the you know the teapot people. Um, uh, in the Republican party and they have now taken control of the entire party. Even, you know, parts of it that don't agree with them are, are falling in line behind them. And the whole party itself is a minority of the whole United States that because they are entrenched in the systems, they are becoming the ruling party. So we are definitely being ruled by a minority and um, you know, what they're, what they are doing is um, is horrible is is, is is you know abhorrent and um, you know i I know in California that we're, they're actually trying to do some things that will make California a safe haven for um, trans families and LGBTQ people to come to um, for to be able to live their lives freely which is, is is good that there are some places that you know we can open the doors but it shouldn't be that way. Um, so, nope. anyway, I want to switch gears back to, um, to a film that that takes us to an intimate relationship um, you know, and pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, so, right now, I want to welcome to the show um, Mari Walker, who is the director, and uh, Puya, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name, Puya Mohensi. Um, who is the lead actress? Um, welcome, ladies. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having, Thank you. For having
0: us. <laughs> uh, uh, honor, honor is us, uh, is ours. I, I want to um, ask you both before we get into the film. Uh, but you both come from backgrounds that are not uh, oblivious to oppression. Uh, oh. Boy, I know you. I, I believe you were uh, born and raised in Iran, and um, yeah. uh, and Mari, your your family was impacted by the uh, Japanese internment. Um, what what do you see? I mean, the scope yeah. of your lives of of oppression to what we were just talking about. What is your what is your input on that? And particularly being trans, what how do you feel emotionally? with that. do you want to go
2: ahead? Uh, Okay, (laughs) sure. I'll I'll do it. Uh, uh, Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, Yes, I was born and raised uh, in Iran. I came to New York when I was 19. But what you were talking about, it is a war. Uh, But I've always known that it's a war because the world that I was born into, I grew up, uh, whether it was Tehran or New York, I've always been very aware that I'm not part of society because society qualifies my existence. You know, it's like if I want the same thing that other people want, it's because I'm not grateful just to be there. And I say that to my kids. I'm like, if you just accept that it is a war, it's a war that has always been and will always in some shape, or form continue to be, then you just realize the rest of it is just, you know, the day-to-day workings of that war, the bills that you were just talking about. Uh, There's nothing new about this. If you look at it, you know, it's like in the 70s with the gay liberation movement, the women's movement, and then the 80s happens with the Reagan backlash. Uh, There's this back and forth, but me as a storyteller as an activist i can take a step back and i'm old enough to be able to take a step back and realize that the fight continues to go not just the loud people that you were talking about that have control over the legislators office or uh, different high power uh, seats around the country or around the world that make these decisions to marginalize the lgbt community in one way or another but that there's also this inevitable fight on the other side. Every young generation that comes, I, as a trans person, I know that people of my generation had a particular language and understanding of their identity and their place in society. And I Mm -hmm. see young people in society that have taken that information and they are like 10 steps ahead. That Mm -hmm. gives me hope because what generations before me and my generation have built, then other people are building on top of that. And so in that way, that's all we can do. We can just keep fighting it. We can just keep educating. My goal in life is to try to uh, impress upon families with young gender uh, nonconforming or queer kids um, that there's nothing wrong with their child, that uh, all they need to do is just, you know, it's like to go through this journey with their child, to support them. Because, uh, you know, people who believe in God or people who think that there's something scientifically wrong with them, and when you sit down and talk to them, you realize it's just all the things that we've been taught by society. So my job as a storyteller and activist is try to kind of like dismantle that and tell stories That gives people this idea of um, representation, of where the queer community uh, can be part of society, how it's been represented and tell the human story and change it through that. Because I've said this before and I have continued to say this, the voice of hate has always been there and will continue Mm -hmm. to be there. And it is very loud and angry. My job and my goal in life is to make sure that the voice of inclusion and compassion is just as supported and strong. And and
0: just a follow-up question, Mark, because I want to hear your answer to that too, but uh, to your point that this is a constant war, um, I've always seen progress as kind of a pendulum or a zigzag of you you gain some and then you you poke Mm -hmm. the bear and it comes back at you. Um, Do you see a lot of this um, animosity and these actions actually being badges of success?
2: I don't. I look at it as just ripples in receding water. Uh, There are people who their privilege is being taken away from them and they're not letting go of it. And I can't quite fault them because they have been told that they are the chosen ones in a certain way, that they're white or Christian or straight or whatever it is that their privilege is. And they don't want to let it go. And I can't fault them as a human being. I'm just not going to allow them to do it within my power when it's going to cost, as you were talking, the lives of young mm-hmm. LGBT youth, because those are my kids. I take ownership of them, and I will fight until my last breath to make sure they're as protected as I can make that be possible.
0: No, I, 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 I hear you, and I'm part of the same parenting team, so I, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, Mari, what, what is your thought?
3: Well, I, I always tend to make the mistake of uh, having Puya go first because she's so incredibly well-spoken, that I always feel like a, a <laughs> daffy kind of loon afterwards. Um, but I, I think that I think that there's something to be said about this this trend that I've noticed over the years. At least in my formative years, you know, I was in college when uh, George Bush was in office in his first term, and and you know, uh, politics have always influenced sort of my own like life trajectory in a lot of ways. But I've I've always noticed that when Uh, a liberal democratic president is elected a lot of times like the energy tends to go down and then the Republican base tends to rise up because then their fervor comes back and then they're the the underdogs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and they get more energy coming through that. And I think that something that really always stuck out to me when I was working. I've been working for a number of years in the documentary about Japanese American internment because my grandparents met and got married in Tule Lake. So it has a very important place in my family history Um, But a person I was interviewing uh, said the Martin Niemöller quote, which is, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, but I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for Jewish folks, but I did not speak out because I wasn't Jewish. And then they came for me, and there was no one to defend me. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, when we let these laws start to impact and we get to this place, of complacency that I see right now, Um, even amongst members of the community and and, and friends of mine and and, and folks out here in Los Angeles, I I get worried because that's when the slippery slope starts to begin. And then eventually those who feel like they have all the rights and the freedoms in the world will suddenly find themselves without it, without anyone, any ally alongside them, you know?
0: No. Yeah, totally. And that's, that has always been my position and my fight i mean obviously being gay i and and living through not only being gay but living through gay being gay through the beginnings during and after of the aids crisis and um all mm-hmm. of that that took place there um through neglect and and you know everything the humiliation um and the fight um yeah. I'm not done. And and I agree with Puya, it's mm-hmm. a war. It's like you know, and we
1: you know, the yeah. battles
0: come out in different themes but it's still a war and until the war is done, um, then we keep fighting and, and fight as hard yeah. for each each level as we can. And of course the kids, you know, that that uh suicide is such and the adults too. It's not like L G B T Q adults are are also at risk for suicide, and so that, that's who we fight for. Um, I, I did want to, because when your um, family came back from the internment camp, their house had been burned down, and you've talked about how um, there's sort of a, a morph from, you know, being a hated minority at the time to being what you call, quote, unquote, a model minority um, and mm-hmm. feeling somewhat privileged. Can you talk about that arc and what what do you see as the nature of privilege? I think that that arc uh, is is an unfortunate one because at
3: least within my own family, we really saw a clear division between those who practiced Japanese uh, traditions and followed Japanese holidays and and really accepted that aspect of their identity and then in particular being Japanese-Americans. And after internment, there's definitely a very clear sort of division for many, many families within that community after the war where they really rejected so many aspects of their own culture to sort of uh, absorb themselves into the you know, sort of the greater, more you know, privileged aspects of those communities. And I think that there is, you know, with, that, with that absorption that I think led to the model minority uh, perspective uh, with it came just a complete, you know, loss of culture for, for many families, and myself included. You know, when I was growing up, I had a very uh, sort of facile, like, superficial view of Japanese culture, and I was interested in samurai, and I was interested in ancient Japan and, and like, Japanese films, but I, I never really uh, understood the culture because I didn't have any family members that I talked to there. We never visited Japan. We never really had those mm-hmm. connections, Like you know, with not raised Buddhist, And um, and I think that, you know, it's it's one of those things that unfortunately comes with, like, being part of the majority then and, and that privilege that comes with it, I think, that I, you know, worry about for so many communities because, you know, that's, you know, the loss of that, um, watching that, particularly within, like, my, you know, like, uh, Sansei and Yonsei, like, the third and fourth generation Japanese-Americans trying to reclaim that from those families that were interned, um, you know, it's, it's tough to see because there's just this clear disconnect. At least I, I certainly feel that way. I, I certainly can't speak for everybody, but that's what I see.
0: Yeah. No, no, you, well, you, you, you said it very clearly. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's, um, I'm just wondering if there's a track with the transgender experience, um, over the past decades that you see almost like a transgender culture growth. Um, and the reason I'm asking that is that I know in my lifetime and my experience, I've just observed that while there have always been transgender people, the, mm. um, the, the science has changed. The cultural understanding has changed, um, and continues to evolve. Um, how, do you, how do you perceive that, and, and is that a fair statement?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, um, as you mentioned earlier about pendulums, I think that the pendulum swing happens in, in many aspects of our communities, but also in our cultural understanding of communities. You know, and I think that for a long period of time as a community, I think we've experienced a lot of demonization. You know, from from the greater culture, um, and then I think for a period of time it's it's swung into this deification period, but now it's heading back towards demonization, and I, it's those swings back and forth, and you hope at some point that, you know, settle the middle. Oh, we're just people, <laughs> we're just human beings, you know, um, exactly. And and that's what's so hard for people who are against this to understand, you know, um, uh, and which is so abstract to to us because it's like you know we're just we're just walking around living our everyday lives but somehow we're perceived as this uh, as the other um, and uh, you know and it's and it's hard because you know you you hope with every generation that comes through you know you hope that they'll be the um, one of the last generations to deal with this 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 cultural strife but it, you know it, it's the war it'll continue and um, mm-hmm. but you know we all just have to be together and strong together and, and be allies for each other and care for one another, you know? And I think that's one of the most important things, at least for me.
0: I, no, I totally agree. Uh, Pooey, I want to ask you, your career has has arced something that I actually love, um, and that is you, know, you have played parts on Law & Order, SUV, uh, Falling Water, Madam Secretary, Big Dog, um, I'm assuming that a lot of the roles you played have been cisgender roles um, as opposed to always playing somebody who is trans. Is that, is that the case, and what is that like for you?
2: That is partially the case. Um, this, is, this is also there's a certain bias that we have. Sometimes when people tell me, "See, you're playing a non-trans role. That's great." I'm like, "I have, I have no shame in playing a good trans role," and I think that's something that should also be addressed. Because as Maria and I have talked about, and one of the reasons why we're very proud of See you, then, is not so much that trans people have not had representation; it's been bad representation. We've been mm-hmm. represented as people who are sick or uh, psychotic or Uh, pitiful, Uh, you know, so somehow something undesirable or scary. So that representation has existed, but that is changing. Uh, I, as a storyteller, I don't care if I only play trans characters, if there are characters that have nuance because all trans people don't have the same story. It's almost like nobody would say, well, why does Viola Davis always play black women? Nobody would ever say that, because Viola Davis can always play a black woman, and those black women don't have to be the same. But when it comes to trans representation, I think we are just realizing that there's not a monolithic representation, that you can have a trans lawyer, a trans mother, a trans brother, a trans bank teller, and all of these different variations, which obviously uh, the industry has not... uh, you know, been very interested in representing unless the story was specifically about someone transitioning or being outed or being brutalized or something like that. But yes, um, some of those roles that you said had nothing to do with me being trans. And I'm proud of those roles as well as I'm proud of the roles that are trans. Uh, When I walk into a room, I am both. I am both Middle Eastern and trans. And so long as Mm -hmm. the story is a good story, so long as the character is having not necessarily just good representation, but a fully fleshed out representation, that a trans character isn't just there as a plot point or isn't being deified or fetishized. In that sense, that part of it doesn't matter to me because whenever I do a role, I try to uh, pay respect to the role I'm playing and the community or the individuals that I'm representing, because that's how I look at the roles that I play. They are individuals that I'm bringing to life. And in that sense, uh, I love the fact that I, as a trans actor, as an openly out trans actor, I've also been given the opportunity to play characters that are cisgender. But on the other hand, what I would like that to signal to the industry that first, trans is not a type, uh, like race is not a type. So mm-hmm. a trans actor can play any role, uh, you know, with, within reason, whether it's age or demeanor, persona, those kind of things. But to also be considered for roles that are not specifically about my gender identity but more about the qualities that I bring as a human being. Right,
0: right, exactly. And that's in my relationship with with people who are trans, I almost have to usually remind myself that they are trans. Because for me, my perception of them is their, their identity. It's like I, I know of women. And, oh, yeah, they happen to be trans women. I know of men. They happen to be trans men. But I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And... and um, mm-hmm you know, the representation in stories, they, number one, there should be trans characters that, you know, that is just, you know, as as much of an piece of information as that, oh yeah, they have red hair. Um, But also, and the thing that I've also noticed in a lot of productions where they do have a trans character is the trans characters are falling into a slot. That gay characters used to be, and those, they, you know, in the '70s and all that, there would be an occasional gay character, but they were always neutered. They were always like, yeah, they're gay and they're flamboyant and they're funny and da da da. But God forbid they actually kiss somebody or they actually have a relationship with somebody. You know, it's like that. That part of the the story is not developed around them. Um, exactly. Let's <laughs> let's let's go to the very fine story that you both have crafted um, and, and what we're actually supposed to be talking about um, is the, uh, the film, See You Then. Um, There's a wonderful, quiet, introspective, intimate film. Um, and Mari, I'm, I'm understanding that, that your desire to work with Puya came before the film. Um, is that true? And how, how did the film develop?
3: I, um, I had been wanting to direct for a number, I mean, really since high school. Uh, I, my video teacher in high school used to give me a hard time um, because he said, oh, you know, you just want to run out to Hollywood and go make movies immediately. You don't even want to go to college. And I was like, yes, I need to make film. Like, this is, this is just what I'm meant to do. And uh, I, I wrote a number of scripts sort of throughout college and then post-college. And, and as it is, the struggles of any artist, you know, trying to get funding for your film, or project, whatever it is, once it reaches a certain cap, you're going to, you know, have trouble. And uh, over the years, I kept on writing scripts, and they kept on getting, you know, more and more intimate and, and smaller, but um, what I really found to be an opportunity with Steve that in particular was um, to, to really get down to learning how to direct actors. I've done a lot of documentary work. I've directed a number of documentaries. I said the Japanese-American internment camp documentary that I've been working on for a number of years. And I really wanted to just have that opportunity to do a two-hander, really, like, sit down and, and, and work with just two exceptionally talented individuals. And mm-hmm. uh, Puya I had seen at a film festival with a film, short film, Swim, that I made a number of years back. And, um, and Puya just immediately struck out as just somebody who um, has emotional conduit she just has that ability to channel emotions perfectly, and and you see it's very rare with actors, in my opinion. And I saw as soon as I saw that short after the date, I was like, I have to work with Puya. I don't know what projects it's going to be, but I have to work with her. And uh, and as we started working on See You Then, you know, I realized that Puya was Chris, and that's who it should be. And I and I was so delighted. When Puya and I spoke for the first time, and she actually liked the script, and I and I and she just sat down and explained to me everything about like the plot and the characters and the decisions, and I never met anybody before who I had such an immediate artistic connection with, you know. And I cried because it meant so much to me. But Pouye, I, think that, I think we that, both
0: I, cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so, so awesome. So what, what's in the development of the story, what inspired you to tell this story and create these two women?
3: I at, at the time when I was working on it, I was really going through, um, you know, sort of the tail end of like the first phase of transitioning. And I was just kind of reflective about, you know, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a woman in our society, what it means to be a mother, you know how important motherhood may or may not be to me at this point. And at the time, I was living with Kristen, our our producer and, and co-writer, and we um, we just had a a lot of chats and discussions just about those those roles that we've taken and and the paths that we've taken that we didn't extend life. Um, and all those conversations, I think, started manifesting around my experiences transitioning and what I hope for the future, but then also my expectations of what I what I wanted, maybe what I might not get, but then also, um, my friend Laura Salmon, who is a performance artist consultant, was living out in um, Claremont at the time, so I was going out there a lot and her experiences really influenced me and then suddenly just kind of you know it's like that little light bulb that goes off and you start to see the characters start to come to life, you know, and then mm-hmm. you get really excited and you start talking to people about it and getting ideas and then uh, and then I wrote out a draft and then I basically, because Kristen was living with me, I forced her to write with me, you know, under duress probably for a, at least a little bit of it. But i um, just really grateful to have so many amazing, incredible collaborators around me. You know, I mean, the director is merely just one cog in a piece of giant machinery of film, you know, and and, and to have everybody around us throughout production to care so much about the material all the way from, you know the producers and executive producers to the gaffers and grips and PAs. Um, it was special. It was really special.
0: I I would agree that the director is is a a cog in the wheel, et cetera, Except in this film, you had to have been much much more because I mean it's just, it's, it's there there is too much that is is you have to be part of those characters and pulling pulling that out and orchestrating it. And, you know, it's, it's not like you get to walk away and turn to the cinematographer and go, uh, oh, you take the afternoon. I'm, <laughs> no. I'm taking off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I appreciate no, no that. No time off there. So, uh, Marty, tell us, uh, cause I, I don't want to give away too much of the plot of what gets discussed mm-hmm. in this relationship. Um, the, the two partners come back together. It's been a decade. Um, the, uh, the Chris character abandoned um, her. Her partner um, walked off without without really a word, uh, and so there was a lot of healing that had to happen in that. But uh, tell us what you can tell without a spoiler um, uh, on what happens between them.
3: Well, I, I you know it's. Uh... Uh, I think the, the the plot summary that I memorized over the over the festival <laughs> route was um, a decade <laughs> after abruptly breaking up with Naomi, Chris invites her to dinner to discuss their lives, their relationship, and uh, and Chris's transition. And over the course of one evening, they engage in a series of increasingly intimate and vulnerable conversations until a shocking truth is revealed. Um, it's very much this this two hander conversation film, uh, very much in the vein of the Before series and. And as you said, my dinner with Andre. Um, but really, it's, it's just a conversation about the various dynamics that we find uh, between, between the lives of women and how we converse and, and what we want to talk about. And I think that an important thing um, for Kristen and I in particular, as we started to write it, was uh, opening up this space that I think is often re- reserved for people in relationships at the time or, or straight cisgendered hetero couples or you know two straight hetero cisgendered men you know which is great but i i wanted to see that kind of film with a different perspective different conversations um, and conversations that i think a lot of people will probably connect with those who who, mm-hmm. who are inside a community and outside of it um and women and men and then non-binary folks you know um i think that there's there's just a lot of of humor and, and joy, but also pain, um, and, and the history, how history comes back to, um, to haunt us all in many ways, uh, for good and for bad. And, um, you know, and then, and then it reaches its, uh, uh, dramatic, uh, results, which I'm very excited for people to see. I'm very excited to see the reaction in theaters. Uh, and I, I should note that, uh, See you then. We'll be playing at the Lamely Glendale at uh, on this Friday, Saturday and Sunday, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of April. Um, and we're just really excited to, like, actually get it out in the theaters. And, you know, I really haven't had that experience of being in, like, a an actual full theater before with the film, so it's going to be very surreal.
0: <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. That is... That... <laughs> That's exciting and you must be nervous. I mean I'm sure it will be incredible. But yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, <laughs> I you, I, yeah. I get the you know, the <laughs> the, the the tension there of, of your baby coming to light. Um oh, yeah. the, oh, yeah. one of the, the the really fascinating things of this film and, and I got hooked right from the trailer um seeing this dynamic was um your character Chris being who you are, sitting down with someone who only knew you as they perceived you to be then, um, how did you relate to that? Have you had people in your lives your life that you have have had this kind of dialogue with and these kind of experiences with and how how did that parlay onto the screen?
2: Well, for me, you know, it's like I had to uh, I had to dig deep into realizing what is similar in Chris between Chris and Puya and what is different. Uh, and I realized, well, who I am now in my life and who Chris are now are very different, because Chris is still very much asking for permission to exist, to be, especially in this context, and um, you know, the way she's maneuvering herself through the conversation, through the night. What can I say? What do I have permission to say? Like, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I look at her in her eyes? You know, those things that we do when we're kind of, uh, uh, you know, drawing out, uh, marking, when we're marking the dynamics of a conversation. And through rehearsal, we found it's like how much comfort is there? How much guilt is there? How much love is there? And I guess when people talk about a slayer it is because all of those things are there. There is love between these two. There is awkwardness between these two. There is resentment. There is guilt. And in you know, in reality at the end of the day, yes, this is a trans character, but this is a human being. So I didn't mm-hmm. necessarily want to think of her as like, Well what would a trans person do in this situation? <laughs> but what would a person who has this history with this person, how would that person react? And I know some of it. This idea of people who... It, it's like somebody only knowing you until you were 10. And now you mm-hmm. see them and you're 40. And they're still looking at you like that 10-year-old kid. And they're like, but you liked peanut butter. Why don't you like peanut butter anymore? Like, well, because I'm not 10 anymore. Right. And I think all of those things were... Um, the specific things that I was uh, thinking about, uh, how does this character sit? How does she hold herself? How does she look at the other character? Um, You know, it's like it's all of those little nuanced things that we do, and I try to make it as authentic to that character because that was also something that was very important to me. I didn't want people to be like, well, that's Priya. I wanted that character Mm -hmm. to walk like that character would walk. She would sit, she would look, she would converse where her voice is, you know, the pitch of her voice, her sense of confidence, her sense of self, all of those things that I was fortunate enough to have Marie and Kristen and Lynn to be able to really uh, basically keep getting more and more specific on who this character is. And, (laughs) the final product I think to me looks like a human being you know fully Mm -hmm. fleshed out human being with humanity with fear with hope and life and that's my job as a storyteller trans or otherwise
0: yeah and and it is evident in the different frames just looking in your eyes it's like there's 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 the depth of the story that, that is given in, in, in even just a look, it's, it's, it's very, exactly. very present. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to go to the, the missing chair in the room, uh, Mari. And that is Lynn Chen who plays Naomi. Aww. Um, um, what was the search for her like? And I understand she kind of pursued you back. Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. Well, you know, we, um we did an open casting call for lynn our our amazing casting director donna morong um brought in just i mean it's one of those things where uh sometimes you sit back at least for me in my experience you sit back in these audition rooms and you're like the breadth and the 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 level of talent that exists in this industry that's underrepresented and under underused is so it's criminal <laughs> And and when, when we saw all these amazing actresses come in, actors come in, it just blew my mind how good they all were. And, and, and they came in with all these different interpretations. Um, but Lynn was our first person to come in for our our, our auditions. And uh, I'm I'm still you know new to the process. And and sometimes you know I'm, I get a little green around the ears. I get a little nervous. And auditioning is just one of those experiences that I just, I really feel for actors. Because, you know, you go into this room, it's usually like a white, scary room, like that looks like it's going to go on for infinity. And then you sit in front of a camera, people don't even look up at you. You sit down and you work on this, you know, monologue that you've been working on for the past three days to memorize and perfect, you know, all the beats and all the hits. And then, you know, they just say, great, next. You know, and it's just such an inhumane process, and I didn't want it to be that way. I wanted everyone to be introduced and everyone, everybody to meet one another and say hello. Um, and, but I was still nervous. Uh, but Lynn just came in with this, this, this wonderful warmth uh, and energy and just happiness, and she was like, oh, my God, I love the script. It's so wonderful to meet you. And, and then we, you know, we sat down, and, and she immediately went into the scene, and I was so like, Wow. You know, like the first time you hear the words spoken from somebody, like an actual like actor's mouth who actually knows how to perform, you know, words, and not just you reading it back to yourself, you get blown away. And I was like, oh my god! And I forgot to yell cut. <laughs> so I was like, cut. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, cut. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's great. Um, and and then I found out many months later that it turns out that where we were doing the audition, Lynn had actually shot a scene from her movie. Uh, I will make you mine, and, uh, and she, so she, she said that when she walked in there, she felt this immediate like relief and almost like this feeling of, of kinship having directed her own first directorial debut the year before, and then seeing me, you know, green around the ears acting like a total doofus in the audition, <laughs> in the audition room, um, and then, uh, you know, we, we realized that, you know, like Lynn's definitely in, in the final candidates, and we wanted to do a reading with Flying out because we felt like, you know, obviously chemistry in the circumstance because it is such dialogue-driven film is really important, and uh, and she was again our first, and um, and she, uh, I think our, our creative consultant Jason Morgan uh, saw saw the tapes, and he said something like, "Get that woman a paintbrush and a performance art degree because she's the one." <laughs> And then Lynn had written me a note in the meantime, a very heartfelt, kind, sweet note, um, just saying how much she cared about the character and that the most important thing for her was that she wanted the film to succeed and she hoped, she hoped that she would be the right person, but if not, that she would support the film wholeheartedly. And, and you know, when you get those sorts of letters, um, it just means the world to you because, you know, it means yeah. that people, people genuinely can care about this material and in, in a way that's deeper than a, a job, you know, and, 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 the same I felt for Puy- with Pia. you know, this, this sense of just interconnectedness. And when you find that with somebody, uh, that you're going to be spending overnights with for the next three weeks or for those three weeks, you know, they, you gotta know, you gotta, you gotta trust those people with your heart. And I'm so glad right. that they did. And
0: Pooeya, you're working with Lynn, what was your process? Cause I mean, um, Uh, Mari had to to pick out the right person for you, but you had the real challenge of, you know, all the emotional bridges that you both had to build. Um, What was that like?
2: Lynn was, uh, you know, the kind of actor that is a dream to work with. And I would like to think that we both just really clicked into the gravity of the project that we were working on. I was there for the the callbacks and there were five amazing women and Lynn again was the first one um, and there's just that connection, you know, it's like I didn't know who they were going to pick because, you know, I read the same scene with multiple people but when I knew by the way, she was, I have said this many times, she was my pick as well, <laughs> uh, even before they had finalized who the person was but when we started we didn't finish work when we said, okay, goodbye today. We'd be texting each other. Uh, She was completely game of creating backstories for these two characters that you do not see in the film. However, the connection between these two characters would not be there had she and I not been open to creating the lives between these two characters 10 years ago. And she was there for it completely. We would text. You know, a little shout out to Rick Astley. The people involved with the film know why Rick Astley is someone I'm giving a shout out to. <laughs> um, you know, we wanted to, like, it was important to me to find out, uh, you know, what did they laugh uh about when they were together? What made them tick? What made them special? And every step of that journey, Lynn was there. And then when we started shooting, it was exactly that. Because as Marie said, there were long nights. Pretty much, we shop mostly nights. Sometimes, you know, late nights. Sometimes, really early morning. And having someone there that's, that's game all the time, you know, fresh, ready there to do the easiest scene, the hardest scene. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. Every piece worked. The between Marie, the, the creative team. Um, the PAs and it—it it was a family. It was truly a family. It wouldn't have been possible otherwise.
0: Well, it, it is amazing, and I love the fact that it was shot chronologically. So, he, and not that you can tell that in the film, but it definitely knowing that and seeing the characters build, you know, it—it—it it, it seems very organic um, uh, because it, it was it was it done that way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I I come from an acting background and and yeah it's it uh, it it makes it again it's more like theater and, and organic and and yeah. you can you can live in the psyche rather than you know have to mentally go over like okay this was when this was how what had we just said you know that 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 extra um, static um, that that you don't need to deal with. Um, we are down to our last four minutes. You both have been absolutely incredible and a joy. Um, and the film is a must-see. So I'm, I'm imploring people to find it. Uh, Mari, to that end, how can they find this? Yes. Um, you mentioned the one coming up um, in the L.A. area. What, Where else can everybody find it?
3: Absolutely. Um, so April 1st through the 3rd is going to be playing the Lamely Glendale, one screening for a day. I'll be there at all three for Q&A. And Kristen and Jordan, our director of photography, and Tom Wyman, our production designer, will be there on the first night, which will be a lot of fun. Um, we're going to be screening at a number of different theaters. The best place for uh, that information to be found is on our, on our Instagram account, at See you Then Film. Um, and, uh, our, our plan is to have it, uh, available on digital release on iTunes, Amazon, all that, all those numbers, uh, April 19th. Um, so hopefully That's then it'll be for out there for the whole world to see. And it feels like my kid's going off to college and I don't really know how to emotionally react to it yet, but it feels exciting and it feels very good. <laughs> um, and Pooja I know has also, uh, an amazing social media presence and I will give it over to her.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, I'm on the East Coast, so I have everybody around me asking me when it's going to come to New York. As soon as it does, I will let as many people know. But this is going to, I think this is going to be one of those projects that I think the more it's around, the more it's going to permeate its message. When people talk about the trans agenda, I guess this is as close as we get to the trans agenda, and our agenda is to try to ensure that everybody feels that they have a right to being and existing and i would like to think that see you then is our effort to try to nurture that um i also wanted to ask you uh, um, and thank you for giving us airtime today and being so gracious as a host
0: uh, my, my pleasure you guys are the best and and uh, happy happy visibility day Um, We are completely out of time. I want to thank you both for the work you've done, the work you're going to do, and everything that you you are out there fighting for. We are right there with you. Um, I want to thank Brody for his work as um, the editor of the L.A. Times, as well as the L.A. Times, my wish, (laughs) the L.A. Blade, and uh, for his work producing this show and co-hosting. And I want to thank our listeners. Um, We will be back again next week with a really fantastic show. I do know what it is going to be, but I'm not going to tell you now. You'll have to tune in and find (laughs) out. But otherwise, we will see you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.